Hello and welcome to Contemplative Episcopalian, a podcast of St. Paul's Episcopal Church. We are a Christian faith community located in downtown Beloit, Wisconsin. I am Father T.J. Humphrey, and for this episode, we are sharing with you a new series, the second uh, episode of a new series that we're doing. The title of this series is called Liturgy, Gathering Around the Practice of Non-Duality. Um... The series itself is kind of multifaceted. Through the series, I'm trying to argue um, for the importance of gathering together uh, and uh, practicing spirituality together (laughs) in an age where uh, people prefer practicing their spirituality alone. Uh, And kind of what I'm doing with this project is, one, trying to sell people on the importance of gathering together, but two, trying to highlight... um, how many points of connection that the liturgy um, has with a lot of the spiritual emphases of the day, right? I think people look at liturgy and they don't understand it, and so they tend to reject it just because they haven't taken the time to, like, learn the language, if you will. Um, But if they would understand it and see how, more importantly, it connects with their own spiritual rhythms and yearnings and all of that stuff... um, I think they would second guess (laughs) some of their decisions. So basically what I'm doing is kind of breaking down different parts of the liturgy and explaining them from a mystical point of view. Uh, In the first episode, I encourage you to go back and listen if you haven't yet. Um, I I give some definitions and I'll, I'll restate those definitions briefly here. So the title is Liturgy Gathering Around the Practice of Non-Duality. So liturgy just simply means the work of the people. It's something that can only be done together, uh, and it's something that's a work <laughs> to be done. Uh, that's that's what we call um, corporate worship in the Christian tradition. And then gathering around the practice, it's basically um, we're, we're choosing to practice something together. That is the work that we're doing liturgically. What is that work? I would argue that the, the, the best way of summing that up is the practice of non-duality. Uh, what does non-duality mean? It, it means like overcoming duality, <laughs> overcoming divisiveness, division, all of that stuff, overcoming chasms between head and heart, physicality and spirituality, uh, the one and the many, that type of stuff, right? So those are just some simple definitions, and I'll continue to define things as I go in this episode. Uh, So the title of this episode in the series is Eucharist. Thank you for joining me. Peace be with you. Thank you for joining me once again as we journey through this new series called Liturgy, Gathering Around the Practice of Non-Duality. If this is the first episode that you're tuning in for in the series, you may want to push pause and go back and listen to the introductory episode first. There's some important information in there that kind of grounds you before you go deeper (laughs) into this thing with me. As I mentioned before, in this series, I'm going to unpack the mystical elements of the various parts of the liturgy as I see and as I experience them as a priest. And my goal is to unpack it all as best as I can for everybody listening, but especially for those who may not be all that familiar with the historic Christian liturgy as it is practiced in the Episcopal Church. In other words, my goal is basically to help outsiders understand the core 
of what it is that we Episcopalians and so many other Christians across the globe do on Sunday mornings when we come together. And as I said in my last episode, one of my goals is to persuade people of the importance of gathering together with others within a concrete faith tradition and community. The goal is to sell people on the importance of practicing spirituality together with other people within a communal context. And I am attempting to show how the historic Christian liturgy could really benefit and even complement whatever spirituality people outside of the stained glass walls are practicing or seeking to practice these days. Now granted, I didn't mention this in the last episode, but I need to now. Yes, I am fully aware that we are still in the midst of a global pandemic and that there are indeed risks whenever it comes to assembling together, gathering together with other people. I mean, there's still people in my parish who haven't been able to return yet six months later or so, even though we've been open for the last six months, right? Because they are in the high-risk category themselves, or because somebody close to them is, and they don't want to inadvertently spread the virus to them. I totally get it. (laughs) They're making the right choice. My aim in this series, it's not to try to like prod these folks back into the pews. That's not what I'm trying to do. Uh, I'm not a pandemic denier. Uh, People still need to use their discretion and stay as safe as they possibly can. They need to do what love requires. That's been a theme in our parish uh, and our diocese as a whole through this whole pandemic. We need to do what love requires. No, this series, it's a big picture sort of project. I am thinking long haul, not immediate future. And I'm trying to address some Western cultural issues as a whole, attitudes and habits that have long existed regardless of this pandemic. I'm not trying to address the immediate issues surrounding the pandemic itself or like the new rhythms of life that it's uh, imposed upon us. And again, my angle here is purely mystical. People who have spent a lot of time in a liturgical tradition like ours may listen to me and feel like I'm not being comprehensive enough or that I'm focusing too much on things that they would deem as being of little importance. And many people who have a passion for liturgical studies, for example, they tend to really zero in on the history of the liturgy and how it has developed or devolved over the passage of time. Yeah, that's not my concern here. That's not what this is about. And it's not that I don't have opinions about such things or that I haven't studied these things extensively, because I really have. It's just that's not what this project is about. Personally, I have a passion for studying the liturgy, and I've had that passion for years now, long before I even became Episcopalian. But I have often found that people who talk about and teach about the liturgy the most, they are usually painfully irrelevant whenever it comes to applying the liturgy to the lives of everyday, ordinary people. They usually fail at helping people to make sense of it. And worst of all, these folks, they tend to strip the mysticism right out of the heart of it. So much so that people cannot find points of contact between their own prayer lives and the liturgy itself, just tragic. So my goal here is to not do that. (laughs) 
My goal is to provide something that is life-giving, relevant, and exciting for people. In other words, I'm just all I'm simply doing is trying to present the liturgy to you all in a way that I wish it could have been presented to me a long time ago. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take the Eucharistic liturgy as it is now, as it is practiced in my little parish, and I'm going to go from there. And again, just a reminder, this is a lot of preface here, I know, but I'll get to it soon enough. My sincere hope is that many spiritual but not religious people who are listening to this will be able to perceive that whatever it is that they are looking for in their lives that mystical experience that they know to be true, but they don't quite know how to name it just yet, my hope is that they will come to realize that that can be found in the rituals and the rhythms of the church's rich liturgical tradition. I'm reminded of a story of a good friend of mine who, even though he grew up in the church, He ended up leaving it for a season because he fell in love with Eastern spirituality and he got quite agitated with Christianity like so many people these days. So he fell in love with Eastern spirituality, so much so that he moved to India. And after spending some time in India, living basically almost like as a Hindu monk, uh, practicing under a guru, his guru asked him why he had uprooted and traveled all this way to the other side of the globe to find the thing that had been in his tradition all along, in his Christian tradition. And his guru told him that what he was looking for in Hinduism and Eastern spirituality in general, that it could actually be found in the teachings of the saints and in the mystical center of the Christian faith. Now my friend is an Episcopal priest. It's been there all along, my friends. (laughs) Even if it's not been emphasized, it's been there all along. One more thing before we dive into this week's theme. In talking in this particular way about the liturgy, the way that I'm approaching it, uh, my goal is to raise the bar quite a bit. To remind Christians of why we should be coming together to begin with and why we need to now, more than ever, ensure that we are keeping the main thing, the main thing. We Christians, we in the pews, we need to ensure that we actually get it and what it's all about, or at the very least, we're trying to get it, right? For far too long, many of us have not known what it is that we really have, this great treasure that is just waiting to be like unwrapped, I think that most Christians treat the liturgy a lot like a like valuable collector's item. Did any of you have parents uh, who wouldn't let you ever take a rare toy out of its box growing up, right? It was like a rare, valuable collector's item uh, that you couldn't play with because <laughs> it had to stay in the box. In my mind, the point of any toy is to be played with, right? That's why they are made. The point is to help create an adventurous, imaginative experience for a child, right? That's why toys are made. So it really defeats the purpose of a toy's existence if you're never allowed to take it out of the box, right? Yeah. The point. The time has come for us in the church to take the liturgy out of the freaking box, It's not meant to be preserved as much as it it is is meant to be played with. 
And we don't need to keep it in mint condition as much as we need to experience it with an adventurous spirit again. And more importantly, (laughs) perhaps most importantly of all, we need to quit slapping people on the wrist every time they reach out to explore this wonderful treasure that we have for themselves. Now, before we examine the various parts of the liturgy, things like the procession or the scripture readings or the passing of the peace or the bread and the wine, we're going to break it down into those types of themes. Before we do that, I want to take a step back and I want to look at it all through a panoramic lens. In other words, I want us to examine the thing as a whole before we attempt to break it down into its individual parts, because the individual parts cannot be understood without first looking at the whole. And I think many Christians, if not most, at least from my experience, many Christians in the Western world have completely lost sight of the whole, of the why behind our gathering. For us Episcopalians, along with many other Christian traditions, the principal service, the main thing that we do together, it's called the Eucharistic Liturgy. As I mentioned in the last episode in the introduction to this one, the word liturgy is usually defined as the work of the people. So whenever we gather together, we are doing something together, creating something together. And what we are doing is something that could not be done if we did not do it together in real time, (laughs) face-to-face, shoulder-to-shoulder. In order for the work to be done, a plurality has to be present. The liturgy, the Eucharist, needs community for it to exist to begin with. Now, the other significant aspect of this definition for the word liturgy is that it is also a work. (laughs) It is the work of the people. We don't come to church to passively consume a product or to be entertained. We come to church to do something. I think that's something that most people do not get. I think that most people who leave the church behind, they do so because it isn't entertaining enough for them. There's other people who leave the church behind for other reasons. I get that. But I think most, most from my experience, most people I've talked to over the last several decades, they basically leave the church behind because it bores them. Well, newsflash. The church is not meant to entertain you. I'm sorry to break it to you, folks. And for those people who complain of boredom during church... I just have to roll my eyes. Like, if you cannot sit in relative silence with other people for one hour a week and meditate upon the divine, well, I'm sorry, but that says more about you than it does the church. It really does. (laughs) So don't try to come to me and tell me about how deeply meditative and contemplative you are if you cannot manage to make it through a Sunday service once a week without getting bored. And if you're bored enough to want to leave, it only proves that you're not willing to do the work. Moving on. 
Whenever we use the words Eucharistic, liturgy, what is the work that is being done? What is it that we are creating? The word Eucharist comes from the Greek in the Greek New Testament, and it means thanksgiving or gratitude. This is highly significant. So the work of the people, the Eucharistic liturgy, is the practice of gratefulness. The entire liturgy, the entire Eucharist from start to finish is a practice in gratefulness. So what is the church really supposed to be all about? What is the church experience really supposed to be all about? It is first and foremost about being thankful. First and foremost, it should be about creating a culture, an ethos of deep gratitude. In the moments leading up to the part of the service, where the people come forward to receive the bread and the wine at the altar rail, the body and blood of Jesus, the whole congregation enters into the part of the service that is called the Great Thanksgiving. This is an important point that often goes entirely unnoticed, even though it's like printed in the bulletins or in the prayer book, whatever you use in your congregation. It's called the Great Thanksgiving. Now notice what it's not called. It's not called the Great Petition or Great Time of Intercessory Prayer. It's not, it's not called the great time of shame and self-loathing <laughs> or the great time of feeling really shitty about your sins. <laughs> it's not called the great time of praise and worship either. It's not called the happy, clappy, fun time for Jesus. <laughs> it's not called the great indoctrination or the great dogma or the great repentance. No. The heartbeat, the pinnacle of the whole thing is an expression of gratitude, great gratitude. It's not just thanksgiving, but great thanksgiving. It's about giving thanks for those things that have already happened. It's not about begging God for something that we have yet to acquire. I mean, the Eucharistic liturgy's very existence assumes, it assumes that grace has already been fully poured out, that love has already been bestowed upon all of us. We don't need to acquire this love or this grace. We don't come to church in order to earn God's acceptance or favor. The whole liturgy, it already assumes that all of these things belong to us already. They've already been given to us. So all that's left is grateful response. All that's left is to accept God's acceptance of us, to make peace with God's peace with us, to rest in God's resting in us. All that is left is the expression of gratefulness for all that has already been given to us, for the reality that we have already entered into. We just haven't woken up to it fully yet. It's really unfortunate but I think a lot of what I'm saying is probably a paradigm shift when it comes to how many people think about the church today. I think most people come to church, I think, to get something out of it, when really church is mostly about giving something, gratitude. We come to church to say thank you. Thank you for life. 
Thank you for this moment. Thank you for these people. Thank you for the love that surrounds us. Thank you that we've been deemed worthy enough to play a role in this whole cosmic drama that is our very existence. As Meister Eckhart once wrote, if the only prayer you ever say in your entire lifetime is thank you, that would be enough. And that's what we are coming together each Sunday to do, to say that prayer, that is enough. Now, the interesting thing is this, in this is that whenever we practice gratefulness, we end up receiving like one of the greatest gifts of all, the reality of this present moment. Gratitude, it roots us in the present, perhaps more, more than any other practice or mental orientation. Whenever we are truly grateful, think about this, when we're truly grateful, we are more preoccupied with what we have than with what we don't have. When we are truly grateful, we are thinking about the goodness that surrounds us in the present moment more than we are worrying about an unpredictable future that has not yet arrived. Gratefulness is one of the greatest doorways into non-duality because it instantly overcomes the barrier that we normally erect between ourselves and this present moment. Gratefulness gets us out of our heads, out of our anxious, frenzied thoughts, and into the depths of our hearts. And just like this prayer of thankfulness that is enough, in Eckhart's words, we discover that we too are enough, that what we're doing is enough, that we are enough for God and enough for each other. And whenever we are grateful, we also touch upon our interconnectedness with other people and with our world. The duality that we normally erect between ourselves and our world is overcome Whenever we are genuinely thankful for somebody, for example, we feel just how united we truly are to them. And we realize that we wouldn't be who we are and that we wouldn't have stumbled across this happiness that we now feel without their presence. And we realize that without them and their influence in our lives, we would not be who we are today in this moment. There's a well-known Zen Buddhist saying that I really like. I wish I had more opportunities to unpack it and share it, so I'm glad I get to do so now. And it goes like this. Before one studies Zen, mountains are mountains and waters are waters. After a first glimpse into the truth of Zen, mountains are no longer mountains and waters are no longer waters. But after enlightenment, mountains are once again mountains, and waters are once again waters. We stumble upon the same mystery, the same truth, in the liturgy if we practice it in the right way and from the right mindset. 
let me rephrase the Zen saying to apply it to my own tradition, the Episcopal tradition. Before experiencing the liturgy, mountains are just mountains and waters are just waters. After a glimpse into the non-duality of the liturgy, mountains are no longer mountains and waters are no longer waters. But after being enlightened, awakened by the liturgy, mountains are mountains once again and waters are waters once again. Before we have the eyes to see, as Jesus says, we see things in their singular nature. A mountain is just a mountain to us, a river just a river, a person just a person. There is an observer and an object that is being observed. But much like Zen, after being trained by the liturgy, after participating in it and its mystery, Mountains are no longer just mountains, and rivers are no longer just rivers. For in the rivers, we start to see the clouds that produced the rain and the snow that created these rivers to begin with. We see atoms and molecules in the waters. In the mountains, we see the web of atoms and molecules, a vast relationship of particles that compose the mountain. What looks like a singularity is actually a plurality. We see the wind and the snow that shapes the surface of the mountain, the tectonic plates that pushed these mountains skyward. We no longer see just waters and mountains, <laughs> but we see the cross-section of a million little things that make these things what they are. And if we realize that this is true of mountains and rivers, this is also true of us as well. While we tend to think of ourselves as individual entities, separate selves, our existence is no different than mountains and rivers, atoms and molecules, people and contexts, plants and animals, and so much more, all of it makes us what we are. The self, what you think of as yourself, it is a cross-section of an infinite amount of relationships. And we literally would not be what we are and who we are without this cross-section. I'm reminded here of something that St. Gregory of Nyssa once wrote in his brilliant work called On the Making of the Human Being. It's often titled On the Making of Man. That's a terrible translation. It's not man, like a dude. It's a human being. On the Making of the Human Being. In that work, he addressed the question as to why, if we human beings are the creatures who bear God's image on this planet, like we're kind of in the Bible seen as like the pinnacle of creation, right? If we are the ones who bear God's image and rule over the earth, why aren't we more powerful? <laughs> why do we have so many flaws if we bear his image? Like, why aren't we the physically strongest creature if we bear his image? Why don't we have claws or shells to defend ourselves like other creatures have, right? Why do we have to eat, whereas plants do not? They, 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 they can go without eating, right? 
There's questions like that that he's addressing. Here's what he said. He said that we're lacking these things that would perfect our nature. Because if we had these things, if we were to be made physically perfect, we human beings would still be dumb enough (laughs) to overlook our interconnectedness and our dependence on the whole cosmos. In other words, God made us with certain weaknesses so that we would awaken to our interconnectedness to the whole cosmos, to everything, and respect it. So we are forced to take things from the earth and make clothing and shelter and tools for ourselves, whereas other creatures don't have to do it to the extent that we do. In other words, God made us in such a way where we would realize that we depend on things around us for our survival, for our very being. Thus, we live into the image of God, not by ruling over everything, not by making Mother Earth subservient to us, but we live into the image of God whenever we come to the understanding that our very existence is a cross-section of the entire cosmos. We are a living, breathing relationship of all things. We are a microcosm of the macrocosm. And once we are enlightened to this truth, then mountains become mountains once more, and waters become waters. We are able to see the complex relationships that make them what they are. We see just how much everything is connected. All duality is overcome, and we shift into non-dual consciousness. My friends, we come together on Sunday mornings to thank God for all of the infinite number of ways in which he has blessed us into existence and held us together in existence. We come together to thank God for all the ways in which he and the whole cosmos that he has created has contributed to our very being. And we express great thanksgiving as we joyfully acknowledge that without God, we would not be who we are today. To be sure, There are other ways in which the Eucharist overcomes duality, such as in the practice of partaking of the bread and wine. I'll touch on that later. Uh, Those parts are yet to come. But for now, let me conclude this talk by summing up the main point of this whole thing, this whole, whole talk. The Eucharistic liturgy is the practice of non-duality, because it is the practice of gratefulness. And gratefulness is the practice of non-duality because it is the practice of snapping awake to the harmony of this present moment and all that God has gifted you with through it.